SBI show. Hello, everybody. I'm Ivis Galarcep, and it is Wednesday. Apologies for no show Monday and no show Tuesday. It's been a crazy week for me. A lot of stuff going on in the backgrounds at uh, SBI headquarters, and uh, you'll hear more about that uh, in the coming days and weeks. But we have a lot to catch up on, which is why I did this episode. Part of me was going to wait till Thursday, Friday and just do one episode this week. Then I realized, look, there's way too much going on. Way too many storylines to jump on. U.S. men's national team. U.S. women's national team. And of course, MLS. A couple items in MLS. Won't be able to get to everything this episode. Uh, my plan right now is to do another episode with more MLS before the weekend. So... We'll drop this episode today, Wednesday. Ideally, an MLS-themed episode for Thursday. And then Friday slash Saturday, we'll head into the weekend talking about the U.S. men's national team in the Gold Cup quarterfinals. So, yes, that's an ambitious plan, but we have to play catch-up after uh, getting a late start in the week. First, we start off with U.S. men's national team defeating Canada 1-0 in what can be best described as a surreal game. It started amazingly, but after that, it was a bit of a struggle for the Americans. And I know some people will say, well, what, what the heck? How did this happen? Why was it such a struggle? And when it comes down to it, Canada really, really kind of exposed the youth of this team. And it wasn't just Canada. It was just the the, the, the circumstances, the whole game, the, the heat, the conditions. And I know people will say, hey, both teams are in playing in the same conditions, buddy. That's not an excuse. Well, on one side, you had a veteran team, clearly a veteran team that was able to, you know, figure it out. On the other side, you had a young team that started amazingly and then didn't really understand how to manage a game like that, especially with a lead, especially, you know, you get that early lead. Early leads are great, but early, early leads can also be challenging because it leaves one team chasing and one team really forcing the issue because they have to out of desperation. And on the other side, you have a team that has a lead and is kind of protecting the lead. We saw it in the Euros, with in the Euro final, European final, championship final with England and Italy. England scores second-minute goal. And what happens? Things get tight for England. You would have thought, oh, wait, they're going to blow it up. They're gonna, you know, 4-0, 5 No, it didn't work out that way. Italy eventually settled down, tied the game, and they wanted in the shootout. As far as the U.S. goes, 20 seconds in Shaq Moore scores. Great goal, by the way. No fluke. No goalkeeper blunder. The U.S. put together a great goal and started in amazing fashion. And look, the, the goal is great. But let's talk about that first 30 minutes. Some of the best soccer you've seen under Greg Berhalter from the U.S. men. They dominated that first 25 to 30, 25 to 30 minutes. But then you had a water break. You had Canada make some adjustments to deal with what the U.S. was doing. And uh, the game changed. And for some of these younger players, particularly, they weren't able to kind of adapt with that. They weren't able to cope with what was quickly becoming a a more intense game. And credit to Canada. Canada is a good team. I've been saying it for I don't know how long. Canada is a good team. People need to respect Canada. And look, this wasn't even their full strength team. As much as we all know, this isn't anywhere near the first strength, the full strength U.S. team. Don't be fooled and think that this is Canada's best. Not only obviously Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David, their two best players not there. 
But John Herdman rested some starters uh, to protect them in terms of cards or try to protect them in terms of car, card accumulation to make sure that they would be available for the quarterfinals. And I alluded to that in the last episode. Had a feeling that that was in the works and that was what Herdman would do. No, and you can't really knock him. You can't really knock him for doing that. As much as it, 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 it not ruined, but it, it goes away from the whole idea of, oh, you know, this great matchup, this rivalry, every, this is the only thing that matters in that moment. But no, it, the quarterfinals are more important, and they were more important, and Herdman treated it as such. So you had Mark Anthony Kay on the bench, Jonathan Sori on the bench, not in the starting lineups. But even with that, they had a veteran team, and they, they really tested the U.S. And it... As much as it, this, as much as people hate that struggle and the struggle that this U.S. team went through, that's the kind of thing you want a young team to experience. That's what you want young players to experience: that struggle, that difficulty. It can't all be cake. It can't all be wine and cheese. It can't all be a party. It can't all be six zeros and six ones. No. The games that help you grow are those tight games. Those tight games you win. And yes, sometimes those tight games you lose. And of course, those, those times when you get beat up. You learn from those much more than you learn from the six zeros. And, you know, when it comes down to it, yeah, some of the players, they, they, they weren't up to snuff. They, were, they didn't rise to the occasion and they struggled. But then you also had some players who absolutely were outstanding. And you have to you have to appreciate that. And right off the bat, first name, Miles Robinson, man of the match for me. And there was, there was a, some players you could say, oh, they had better moments in the game. They had better stretches in the game. But in terms of my 90 minutes and in terms of the importance to the result, Miles Robinson was, for me, my, like just far and away the man of the match because he put out so many fires. When Canada was just pouring it on, when Canada was really knocking on the door and it looked like it was going to happen, they were going to find that equalizer. The Atlanta United defender was there every single time. It didn't matter if it was a, a, you know, a powerful striker or a speedy winger. He was up to every challenge. So great for him. And obviously one of the storylines in coming into the Gold Cup was which center back would step up, which center back would throw his name into the full conversation for World Cup qualifying and and potentially into the conversation of who starts next to John Brooks. But now there's some new questions about center back and about the system that Greg Berhalter will prefer because we have a player who's kind of stepped forward and just really become his his own kind of cheat code, and that's James Sands. And, And I absolutely wanted to talk about his performance because... Anyone who listens to the show knows I've been on the the James Sands bandwagon for I don't even know how long now. And seeing what the things that he's doing and has done, even for me, who has wanted to see him get this opportunity for so long, like it is on. It is just you have to you have to clap your hands. You have to clap your hands and give him the credit because he has the potential to, to let this U.S. team do so many different things. He is so versatile. His first 25 minutes against Canada some of the best, some of the absolute best, uh, 20, one of the best little 25-minute stretches you'll ever see from a defender. I mean, he, and obviously he wasn't just a defender, and that's what made it so amazing. He was basically a libero. I mean, it was like shades of Franz Beckenbauer in dropping back deep to protect defensively, center back, and when the U.S. had the ball, slide right into midfield and distribute, and play, play, play that distributor role, allow Gianluca Busio to, to push forward, it went amazingly. But of course, it, it was hot. 
And James Sands was doing a lot of running because when you're, he's basically playing almost two, he's playing two positions at that point. And he's in two different areas of the field. And, and that, to do that, that requires a lot of running. That requires even more running than normal because, you know, you have to get from one spot to the other. And he did that. But it eventually wore him down. And he, he admitted as much on Tuesday. He spoke to the media and, and Sands basically admitted, like, look, you know, I, I got tired. And once James Sands got tired, and, he, and look, it wasn't just him. A lot of, pe- a lot of some of the other players, you could tell that they faded. But James Sands, once he fatigued, it changed things for the U.S. because he was doing so much to allow them to dominate because of all the work that he was putting in. Once he wasn't able to do that, it was a whole other ballgame. And some other players did not step up. And we, we, we obviously have to talk about the players who struggled, the players who, mm, you know what, they didn't have the games that you would like to have seen them have. And two of those players, Daryl D.K. and Gianluca Busio. And first with Busio, let's, let's be clear. Gianluca Busio is extremely talented. Bright future. But he struggled in this game, particularly after that first 25 minutes. So in terms of overall performance, it was not a good performance from him. Does that mean he doesn't get any more chances? Does that mean he's done? Does that mean, you, you know, does the air come out of the balloon? No, not by any means. And that's what people need to realize and remember. One bad game doesn't mean throw this kid out. Never going to happen. Never going to do it. And I know not many people are doing that with Busio, but I just mean in general. Obviously, in some instances, when there's a player who's a surprising inclusion and, and then they show that they're not really to the level, that's, that's something else, right? But when in terms of you know, younger prospects who have shown their quality or veteran players who have performed, but just because you know, they're not the flavor of the month anymore, people want to get rid of them, these players can still contribute. And a, a performance that comes to mind for me was Landon Donovan. I'm taking you back a bit. Landon Donovan World Cup qualifying 2001. His first, I believe it was his first World Cup qualifier against Honduras in at RFK. He struggled. And it was a lot of hype leading up into that game. And he had a bad game. And guess what, folks? He did all right for himself after that. He had a pretty good national team career after that forgettable performance. In World Cup qualifying against Honduras. So just that, that goes back to, to say, look, with Busio, not his greatest day. And he's going to learn from that. He's going to learn from the challenges that that game presented. And he's going to learn about what, how you manage that kind of game. And he'll be okay. But if anything, it tells you, listen, he's not as close as you might have thought in terms of, oh, he's ready to start. He's ready, he's ready to knock on the door for the first team. He's ready to, you know play the six if Tyler Adams isn't available he's the next guy up and you know what maybe not yet maybe not yet as far as Daryl DK goes you know what obviously strikers rely on service and the U.S. midfield did not after the first 20 seconds did not deliver a ton of service the U.S. men had no shots on goal after the goal so for 89 minutes and 40 seconds no shots on goal and some of that, obviously, you have to put on the midfield and the lack of service, but you also can look to what DK did and what he didn't do. And some of the flaws that he showed in his game, his touch wasn't so great. Uh, he, and one of the main things I definitely wanted to, what stood out to me is this, look, we've seen DK be outstanding and bully teams and just overpower teams. He wasn't overpowering Canada. 
And they stepped up to that. Phys- the physicality, not a problem for the, for the Canadian center backs, the Canadian defenders. You're not even just the center backs. Richie Larea tossed Daryl DK onto his shoulder. Or obviously, all right, that's a little <laughs> that's a little uh, exaggeration. He, I, I think he hit him. They hit him in the face, and then and then DK goes flying, and that's when he hurt his shoulder. And now he's that's a question mark if he's even going to continue in the, in the tournament. But back to the point, you know, I, I think DK kind of showed when he wasn't able to overpower an opponent and he wasn't able just to run through an opponent. He struggled. He struggled. And there were flashes there. There were moments there where he came close to breaking through. He came close to getting in behind. Canadian defender stepped up. Kamal Miller, I, one, you know, I saw what there was one sequence when Kamal Miller, again, DK's former teammate, I believe, at Orlando. He was there. He said, you know, he, he raced down and he closed him down and shut him down. And there were some of those moments where you just saw Canadian defenders present a, a tougher challenge. And DK couldn't just overpower them. So now the question becomes, do you write that off? And do you still start him in the quarterfinals? Or do you look at it and you look at Jossie Zardes, who, no, Jossie Zardes didn't have a great game either. But for me, Jossie Zardes showed more than DK. He showed his experience from the standpoint of he's, he was better, clearly for me, clearly better at moving into good spaces and combining with teammates. And he actually, dare I say it, he actually showed a better touch. He actually showed a better distribution, ball handling. And I know that's always been the knock on Jazzy's artist, his touch being just, you know, you have highlight reels of his poor touches. And it's kind of become this running joke. But hey, he showed some, for me, he showed some good touches in this game. And he showed me some of the veteran savvy. He has this experience. He's played in these games. So that the game was not too big for him. And not to say the, big, the game was too big for DK specifically, but if you, if you ask me, if, if, if I didn't know any, if you didn't know anything about either of these guys, you didn't know their backgrounds, you didn't know, you know, what their experiences are, what their recent form is. And you just watch them play in this game against Canada. I don't know how you would look at it and say, oh, yeah, I'm starting DK over over Zardis if I have to choose. I'm sorry. I'm starting Zardis based not it, just based off that. But then when you actually take in the context and you actually take in the, the information that's available and you know the experience edge, you go Zardis. And I know a lot of people are not going to be happy about that, but I think that's what's going to happen. I think that's what ultimately Greg Berhalter is going to do against Jamaica, who the U.S. is going to play. We'll get to that a little bit later. Another player we have to talk about is Donovan Pines. And first thing I'd like to say, and I say I said this in recent episodes. If and I've said this about other players, if the player struggles that probably shouldn't be there or probably shouldn't play. I think I, oh, actually I said this about Jonathan Lewis. When Jonathan Lewis looked terrible in the first game against Haiti. Don't blame Jonathan Lewis. Because he's there, he, you know, it's, it's not his fault he was called in to a, a situation where he sh- probably shouldn't be there. Same thing with Jackson Ewell. Donovan Pines gets thrown in because my, uh, Walker's in room gets hurt. Greg Berhalter has this very tough decision to make. Do I scrap my system, my 5-3-2, which was actually dominating at that point, first 15 minutes of the game? Do I scrap the entire system and bring in a Christian Roldan, switch to a 4-3-3, or do I stick with my system that's working so well, bring in Donovan Pines, who's, who I know is raw, who I know is f- a flawed defender and could be a liability, but I can hope that the rest of the team picks up the slack. 
And that was kind of the, the, the conundrum that Berhalter found himself in as Walker Zimmerman is getting treatment for the injury that ends up forcing him out. And that's, I believe it was like the 15th minute of the match. U.S. completely dominating the game. James Sands, full friends, Beckenbauer mode. And I think Berhalter's initial reaction was get rolled down in there, 4-3-3, play it safe, we got the lead, right? And then the more he thought about it, he's like, you know what? I got to play my system. I got to give this team a chance to play to, to work it out. Let these guys, let, let, let these players that I've given this opportunity, let them work it out. I've trained this system. I gave them this system to, to, to play it well, and they're playing it well. Let's just roll with it. So he ends up putting Donovan Pines in. And in the first half, it wasn't such a bad it, idea just because Pines did okay for himself in the first half. He held up well. Even though you could kind of tell, you could kind of see the way he moves and say, he's a bit of a liability. He's not the quickest. He, his lateral movement isn't the best. He can get exposed. Second half comes and the mistakes start to happen. He gets exposed and everything kind of fell apart because the rest of the team was already fading. Busio was already fading. Sands was already fading. And in Canada, and this needs to be said, because it was after the game, Canada couldn't wait to talk about how they, they dominated the game. They deserved a win. They wanted to put it on the referees. And I'm sorry, folks, it was not a penalty. Richie Larea, Walker Zimmerman. Walker Zimmerman fouled Richie Larea in the penalty area. Yes, absolutely. But Richie Larea fouled Walker Zimmerman right before that. Grabbed him. Clear as day on the, on the, on the replay. So it's not a penalty. It was a foul on Larea first. So let's get that one out of the way. And that's the that's as close to a legitimate penalty claim that there was for Canada. So Canada let it go with the penalties. There was no penalty for you to deserve. But Canada did have some chances. Plenty of possession. But how many really, really, really dangerous chances did they have? How many of those shots? Because they had a ton of shots. They outshot the Americans. But how many of them really tested Matt Turner? Really, like, really tested him? So, if anything, Canada, get get off the high horse a little bit and accept the reality that you blew it. The U.S. was there for the beating. And Canada didn't, didn't step up with the quality in the attacking third to take advantage of that. And obviously, there were some injuries. Ayo Akinola gets hurt. Tor, uh, apparently has an ACL injury. Now he's out for the year. And that, that's, uh, you feel bad for the kid. And I know some people might take some joy in that, in the irony of it, that the player who spurned the U.S. to play for Canada tears his ACL against the U.S. I take no joy in that. That's because that's, look, at the end of the day, he's still a person, a human being, a young kid who made a decision that was completely understandable, by the way. He grew up in Canada. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to hate on the kid. Some fans can do that. Fans, you can kind of resent the player for making a decision. But, hey, I understand why he did it. But anyway, back to the, you know, back to the point that you Canada they they played well and they could have won. But it's on them that they didn't. It's on them that they didn't convert. So, uh, you know, I'm it just it was a little much for me after the game listening to the to the Canadians talk about how what they, you know. Yes, they played. They could they and John Herdman, credit to John, the Can, Canadian coach John Herdman, I'll give him the credit. Cuz he struck the right tone. Because he understood those are the kind of games Canada needs to start winning. 
and they have it on, and it's on them to do it. It's on Canada to, to, to be able to win that kind of tough, tough and tight game. And that's why, as much as I know after the game, U.S. fans, a good number of U.S. fans, and some U.S. Some analysts and some you know, observers kind of were all over the U.S. team for a poor performance. And yes, it was a poor, poor overall performance. But there's value in the struggle and coming out of a struggle with a win. There's value in holding on. There's a value in, in that experience of we did it, we held on, we won. And part of me thinks that's that's why in, I think in some instances Burhalter left some guys in longer than people would have liked. Because I think as a coach, he's someone who wants to let players solve their own problems and deal with adverse situations because that's how you grow. And it, so it wasn't pretty, but at the end of the day, they got to win. At the end of the day, Miles Robinson can he, Miles Robinson heard that final whistle, and in that moment knows he did the job. The, James Sands, the same situation. James Sands, who was struggling at the end, like physically, like he looked like he might have to come out of the game because he was really just it was hitting him physically. He held down ninety minutes, got to the final whistle, did the job. And he, James Sands, will grow from that experience. So you take the victory, ugly as it was, and you take the experience that it gives the team. So, and, I, and you, can, you, could come, you could argue that that's, you know, looking at it optimistically, silver linings, blah, blah, blah. Look, they won 3-0. and One of only two teams in the group stage to go 3-0, and Costa Rica being the other. So obviously the U.S. needs to get better. But I also think Baralta is going to go with more experience now. Now we get to the quarterfinals, and now you, I think you're going to see a more experienced team. And I know I said that before the Canada game, but I'll be the first to admit I should have known, or you know, I was I was surprised that Berhalter would go with younger players and give them their opportunity as much as they deserved it and earned it. James Sands earned an opportunity there. Busio had earned an opportunity there, and Berhalter gave them those opportunities. Now. Now you're in the knockout rounds. This is the business end of the tournament. And I think Berhalter is going to go with a more experienced team. And we'll get into potential lineup options in the uh, next episode before the game. So I won't get into that too much uh, uh, now because I, I got, <laughs> we have to touch on a few different topics here for, for this episode. But for sure, Miles Robinson, man of the match, James Sands, uh, unbelievable. And going back to James Sands... I know it's only it's still kind of a short, small sample size. But if I'm Greg, I know Greg Berhalter is is just giddy at considering the possibilities when it comes to James Sands and what James Sands can do for you. Because you need when you have a player like James Sands who can distribute and defend, slide into midfield, be in possession so comfortably, and also be a solid defender. I mean, he he gives you that option, or he gives you the, the ability to play three center backs. I mean, it's one thing to have three center backs, and they're all pretty good defenders. And I think Berhalter was already wanting to do that before Aaron Long's injury. Even before, you know, obviously Aaron Long, before he was injured, was a starting center back. And if Berhalter was going to play three center backs, he would be one of them. It was going to be Brooks, Aaron Long, and then whoever wins out between the Chris Richards and Mark McKenzie's, uh, Matt Miazga's and those. And whoever it would be, that trio would lie, was going to rely heavily 
on John Brooks in his in his distribution, even though he wouldn't likely be the central center back in the three. Now with James Sands, he is the like if you were a coach and you could kind of draw up the the ideal in terms from a technical profile, the the middle center back in a three, James Sands would be that player. No, he's not 6'4 and a freak athlete and an amazing distributor. Because look, if he, if he was that, he'd be a hundred million, he'd be eighty million dollar center back. So that's let's be clear. But he gives you the ability to comfortably play with three center backs because he can distribute like very few can, and he can slide comfortably in in the midfield like I, no one can. I don't think I, I can't think of an, like right off the top of my head. I can't think of another center back who can do that. Right now. And that's not to say James Sands is better as a center back than some of these other center backs that I mentioned earlier, but he is unique in his profile and specifically for the system. So he makes the system more more realistic. Something that Berhalter can absolutely use. It's gonna be up to James Sands now to continue to show that he is good enough a defender if you're forced to play with with four, uh, four across the back. If you're forced to play, you don't have the three center backs to play three. And that's what's going to happen now. Walker Zimmerman is out. And that's that's really going to force Greg Berhalter's hand because now the question is, do you go, do you stick with the 5-3-2 but have to play a, a Donovan Pines or Henry Kessler who is now joining the team for camp and hasn't officially been added? Or do you, or you shift to a 4-3-3 Play Robinson and Sands in the middle. Put the five three two on the shelf just because you have to, and I think that's what's going to happen. I think we're going to see four three three the rest of the way, at least in terms of starting setups, starting uh, systems. I think that's what you're going to see. You could see the the, the five three two at certain moments potentially, but it's tough now. Zimmerman's out; he's done for the tournament. Hamstring injury changes everything. So we'll see, but I tell you what, James Sands, I can't talk enough about how good he looks and how poised he is and how just listen, listening to him talk to the media on Tuesday. I mean, he, he's grown up so much and he's, he's just sharp. He's so sharp. And I, you know, obviously, you know, covering him here in New York and it'd be, he could very easily right now be calling people out for the fact that he hadn't gotten a call up sooner. And now there's become this whole narrative that it was always injury related. That's not true. There's, there were absolutely moments in his development in, in the recent years where he was completely healthy and did not get a call. So let's not rewrite the people. I don't know. There's, that, there's become this thing where people really try to rewrite history. It was not injuries every single moment, every single instance where James Sands was not called into a youth national team in the last two years, three years. It was not injury related, folks. Absolutely not. There were moments he could have been called in. Should have been called in. Wasn't called in. And you know what? Maybe that's motivation now for him. As much as he didn't bite, you know, take the bite, the bait when asked about that. But you know that's motivated him. I'm going to get my opportunity eventually and I'm going to show them what I can do. And this is what he's done. He's shown what he can do and it's great. It's been, and it's one of the bright spots of this tournament. Now, as far as going back to the injury replacement issues, Walker Zimmerman is out. That's, that is the one official thing we know. Henry Kessler and Cade Cowell are in camp. They have not been added yet formally. There's been no request made, but basically they're going to train with the national team the rest of the week. 
the U.S. has until 24 hours before the quarterfinal to make a roster change, to request a roster change. And Cal being in tells me Daryl DK might might miss the rest of the tournament, or at least they're monitor, monitoring it and they wanted to have someone ready. And obviously that would be disappointing if DK is injured and can't go the rest of the way. The silver lining in that is Kate Cal being in one of the most exciting teenagers in MLS also happens to be somebody who can play for Mexico. So if you can cap tie him, I mean, you don't bring him in now because you, you want to cap tie him. You bring him in now because he's very talented. He's, he's in good form. He can play the position you want. So it's great that he's in as far as Kessler goes. Uh, it's been an interesting year for Henry Kessler because in t- last season, Henry Kessler was one of the best rookies in MLS, one of the better center backs in MLS. And now this year, it's been a bit of a roller coaster for him. He kind of lost his grip on the starting role. He had an injury. Uh, he, so he was in and out of the lineup, but now he's he's been back into the starting lineup for New England. And he is an excellent def- uh, center back. And I know in Olympic qualifying, he wasn't like dominant, but he's very good on the ball. I think he's a good. Def- I think he's a very good defender. And for me... I think he's better than Donovan Pines, and and you know he he if you're going to stick with four four three three the rest of the tournament, you're gonna for me I think you'll see Kessler before you see Donovan Pines. If you have to make a substitution for whatever reason, or you decide you want to try to slide James Sands in the midfield, so I think Kessler could absolutely overtake Pines because as I said I've said repeatedly I think I my impression was that Pines was brought in because of his experience playing in the three center back system even with his flaws even with his clear uh technical deficiencies so Kessler from Berhalter will be hoping he can get that job done so uh US, as as I said earlier US men's national team takes on Jamaica on Sunday Jamaica losing to Costa Rica on Tuesday night, and we're getting USA Jamaica again. And if it seems like this happens more often than it should, this is actually going to be the f- this will be the fifth time in the past in six Gold Cups. Actually, four of the past five Gold Cups, the US has played Jamaica in the knockout rounds. This is going to be the fifth of six. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. And of those, the US has only lost one. That was the 2015 semifinal, the Jurgen Klinsmann era, when the US lost two to one. In uh, I'm sorry, the 2015 semifinal, and Jamaica's a, a Jamaica's a tricky one. They're a challenge. Andre Blake in goal, Leon Bailey in the attack. Their midfield's their weak their weak point, and that's where if you're the U.S., you really want to be able to control that game, dominate the game. I watched Jamaica against Costa Rica, and Costa Rica, a veteran team, they brought their most of their top play, uh, field players. And they controlled that game pretty comfortably. Jamaica really, you know, struggled. Even with a man down toward the end, the last 20 minutes, the Costa Rica was a man down, goalkeeper was sent off. And Jamaica, you know, they made, they, they created some threats. And again, it was they, Jamaica rested players. Jamaica, Jamaica rested Andre Blake. They rested Leon Bailey, several starters looking ahead to the quarterfinals. So Jamaica is a challenge, but it's a challenge a veteran U.S. team, the, a veteran group in this roster should be able to overcome. But it will be a test. And if the U.S. plays poorly, they will absolutely lose. So that's going to be the challenge for Greg Berhalter, figuring out the lineup and getting them to the semifinals where I tell you what, they could be a very interesting challenge between El because El Salvador could be in the semifinal. El Salvador is playing out of their minds. And I'm going to save more of my El Salvador talk for the next episode because I need to wrap this up. But El Salvador, man, keep an eye out on El Salvador. Up next, we have to talk U.S. women's national team, and they have started the Olympics with a loss. 
And not just a loss, a 3-0 loss to Sweden. And I know a lot of people like me woke up this morning and had to like do a triple take because I did. I tried to stay up to watch the game. And as much as I'm a night out, I couldn't pull it off. And I wake up 3-0. The unbeatable Americans have been beaten. And as shocking as it is, should it be that shocking that a team that they just tied a few months back gained confidence from that result and caught them lacking, caught them slipping? And of course, now, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the it's going to you're going to see a lot of people turn on the U.S. women now and say, ah, they're vulnerable. Ah, they're overconfident. And you know what? Maybe there's something to the idea of overconfidence. And we've seen this before in powerhouse teams. I think of Spain 2010 World Cup. The year they won the World Cup, they lost the first game to Switzerland. Shocker. I was like, what? And guess what? They still went on to world, win the World Cup. And that's, what, that's why I would tell people to be careful jumping on or dancing on the alleged grave of the U.S. women because they looked bad and lost their first game. Because that could just turn around and wake the, the sleeping giant. And it could just be what the U.S. women need to wake them up. But what I would say is that it, if any, if one of the things this this result should do is let people know and help people understand that the women's game is changing, and there is more of a balance. And with teams with, with men's teams in Europe putting more money in, you're seeing stronger uh, stronger opportunities, stronger game, uh, teams, and player more and more players developing, which leads to stronger national teams. And especially in Europe. So you're going to see European teams kind of start to close that gap. And I think now with this result, you're going to see some teams look at that and see it as blood in the water. If you're Great Britain right now, or if you're the Netherlands right now, heck, if you're Brazil right now, you're looking at that and you're saying, ah, the U.S., there's, there's a jink in that armor. They can be defeated. So they're going to they're going to they're going to be coming for the US now. They're going to be gunning for the US in a whole different approach now because now it's not this the invincible Americans, now it's a very good US team, but maybe maybe they're vulnerable. And to that I would say don't, don't take it for granted that the US women are all of a sudden beatable by everybody. And and if you don't think they're going to rebound, I, I I would be surprised if they don't turn it around now. Get off the mat. And just really run through everybody. That That's what could and should happen. But it's not going to be easy. Because there are some very good teams in this tournament. Like the Dutch and like Great Britain. Now before we wrap things up. Last but not least. We got to get a little MLS in. Uh, I'll touch on more MLS the next episode. But we have to talk. Gabriel Heinze has been fired. Atlanta United fires Gabriel Heinze. And the stuff that's come out about the situation at Atlanta. Is unbelievable. Apparently, Gabriel Heinze was just making his team train all the time, ignoring rules, uh, restrictions on how much you can make teams train. He was limiting water intake, stealing Peter uh, Novak's whole flow. It, it, things apparently just were not were very ugly there, and it just he just quickly was not. It was pretty clear he was not a good fit there. And I, I've I've been on record saying that I thought Gabriel Heinze would be a good fit. I thought he would be a successful manager. And early on, it looked like he was doing well. When you looked at the CONCACAF Champions League, it looked like things were going well. But clearly, things went south in a hurry. No pun intended. And, you know, with the whole Joseph Martinez situation, with, with Heinze basically ostracizing him and, and not letting him train with the first team, things got ugly. And now Atlanta finds himself without a coach again. So that's two straight coaches now between Frank DeBoer 
and Gabriel Heinze. Neither worked out. Atlanta's in a bit of a messy situation, which is obviously disappointing because Atlanta's one of the one of the teams in MLS with with the resources to have a juggernaut, to have a, a an excellent team to watch, to pack that Mercedes Benz Stadium. And obviously, right now they're a bit of a mess. And their next hire, and I feel like this is a broken record. They got to get the next hire right, just like they needed to get the last hire right. I don't know who they're going to go with. And I think I'm in. I think some people agree. With me. I feel like it'd be great if they hi- if they can find a good American coach to hire. But some of the better prospects that you would think, or that I would think of, when you talk about like a Steve Chirondolo, obviously Colorado Sport and Edgar Chirondolo have that experience, that 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 history, their their close friendship. But if you're Atlanta, are you going to hire someone with that little first team experience, first team head coaching experience? So I don't know which which direction they're going to go. But you know what? Hopefully they can straighten it out and get Atlanta back to their winning ways because it's better for the league when Atlanta is is playing well, being entertaining like they were in their in their early years. And we'll sign off with Josie Altador returning from exile. Speaking of teams with coaches they had to get rid of, TFC brings Josie Altador back and he responds with a goal, a winning goal in Toronto's first game in Toronto in more than a year. Hats off to Josie Altador. And TFC, let's not write off and forget about TFC because they have way too much talent and I think they're going to, you know, depending on how it goes there with the coaching situation, they're going to be right there in the end. They're, people, I think it, it was easy for people to write off Toronto because of their poor start. But some of that was injury related, and I think they're going to be okay now. So keep an eye out for Toronto FC. And I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Uh, my apologies that we didn't weren't able to touch on everything else. And uh, again, apologies for the episode not coming sooner in the week. We'll make it up. In the next couple of days, uh, hopefully rattling off episodes on Thursday and Friday. Stay tuned for that. I think we did touch on some of the main points that I wanted to get to, but that's all for now. Thank you for listening. I'm Ivis Kalarset. This is the SBI Show.